couple of years ago, Margaret Richardson filed a lawsuit against the department, the fire department in Marietta, Georgia. She had been a lieutenant in the fire department for several years before a promotion that she wanted and applied for was given to someone else. And so that was the reason for her lawsuit. And in her lawsuit, she claimed that the former fire chief created an environment of, quote, pervasive bullying, bigotry, and favoritism. Through name-calling and acts of outright aggression and threats. And that's the end of the quote from her filing. So she had her day in court, but she lost. And to make matters worse, not only did she lose, but the court ordered her to pay $4,350.32 to the Marietta, to the city of Marietta for legal fees. Now, favoritism is ugly. It's ugly if it happens against you. It's ugly if it happens to someone you know and someone that you love. But as ugly as favoritism is, it's not usually against the law. Favoritism is not usually a violation of human law. Now, there are some laws against favoritism. That's why I put the word usually in parentheses there, because there are some exceptions. There are some laws against favoritism here in the United States, The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is probably the strongest example. But those laws are very hard to enforce. They may be on the books, but that doesn't mean that they get applied and enforced very often. And that's because in most cases, you can't see what's in somebody's heart. And favoritism is a matter of the heart. Sometimes actions that may look like favoritism to some are not motivated by favoritism, but they're caused by some other decision, some other reason. And so to prove favoritism, because it's a matter of the heart, to prove it then, you need evidence. You need evidence like a statement witnessed by multiple people. A statement like, I'm going to hire him over him because he's a white man. Okay, that would be an overt piece of evidence that would work to enforce a law such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You need either someone to say that out loud with multiple witnesses or you need them to write it in an email or some other way in which it can be demonstrated in court that a person's intent was wrong behind the decision that they made to show favoritism. But unless you have that kind of evidence, it's going to be very difficult to make a case. It's going to be very hard to prove that someone has discriminated, that someone has used their position to show favoritism to someone else. And the truth is that most kinds of discrimination, most kinds of favoritism, don't violate any law at all. I'm thinking here of a few examples, but a lot of them I'm sure could be, could, we could come up with. One example of favoritism that is not illegal is if someone said overtly, we only hire University of Michigan graduates. There's no law against that. It's favoritism for sure. And it might, be, might not be the smartest thing to do because smart people go to other schools besides Michigan, believe it or not. But there's no law against having a policy like that and using favoritism in that way. 
Or here's another one. She only dates guys who are six feet tall or taller. Okay, and you notice my hand is above my head because I don't meet that standard. Guys who are below six feet tall cannot sue a woman. They could accuse her of favoritism, I guess, but they're never going to get in her good graces that way, so it would be foolish to do. There's nothing wrong with that kind of favoritism. And so there are many examples we could multiply to show that favoritism is something that happens in our culture, in our world, in many ways, and most of the time it's not against the law in a human sense. But although favoritism is not usually a violation of human laws, it does break God's law. It breaks God's law of love. We find that in our passage for this morning as we continue our look at the first several verses, the first 13 verses of James chapter 2. James is discussing the topic of favoritism, and this is the third message we've looked at, this, where we've looked at this paragraph in its various pieces and parts. And this morning, James is going to talk to us about God's law and favoritism's relationship to God's law. Now, remember the context in which James writes about favoritism in this, uh, in this paragraph of Scripture. The context is the church. James is concerned about favoritism being shown among the people of God as they gather together to worship and to be the people of God, to be the church in the world. That's the context that matters for our discussion. Favoritism applies in other contexts. It's, it's unwise and sinful, perhaps, in other contexts. But that's not what James is talking about here. James is talking about a particular type of favoritism in the body of Christ, in the local body of Christ. He doesn't care if a woman only dates people who are tall, dark, and handsome. That doesn't matter to James. But he does care if you and I show favoritism to people who are tall, dark, and handsome over people who don't fit one or more of those criteria. And so with that context in mind, we need to understand the the next um, idea that James is talking about, which is that favoritism breaks the law of God. It breaks God's law of love. And as we get ready to jump into the text, the first thing I want you to understand and notice as we start to look at these verses is that love is the center of God's law. Normally when we think of law in any sense, a human law sense or even the law of God sense, we don't think of love typically is the first thing that comes to mind when we think of the law. God's word is going to tell us that love is central to God's law. And if we do not understand that, we will not only understand the meaning behind God's law, the applications behind God's law, and why and and the ways in which we violate the law of God in the way that we treat other people. And so James wants us to understand that love is the center of God's law. This is why favoritism violates it. Let's look together at our passage beginning in verse 8 this morning. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. This passage tells us that love is the center of God's law. And let's begin in the middle of it with this Statement here, love your neighbor as yourself. This phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, 
comes to us, as James told us, in Scripture. It comes to us in Scripture. It's found in Scripture. And the first place it is found, the place in Scripture where it originates, is in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. Now, it's unlikely that you've been doing your devotions in the book of Leviticus lately. It's unlikely that Leviticus is the book of the Bible that you turn to for comfort, that you turn to for instructions on the daily, but Leviticus is part of God's word. And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God communicates the importance of love to his people and the centrality of love to his word. Now this passage, Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself, is actually just tacked onto a more specific command against seeking revenge or holding a grudge. It just appears in in a list of commands, one of which is, do not seek revenge or hold a grudge against your neighbor, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It looks like it's just tacked on to the end. And yet, despite the fact that it looks like it's tacked on to the end, despite the fact that, that Moses, when he gave the law, didn't say, okay, here's one of the most important principles of the law, love your neighbor as yourself, even though he didn't say that, God's people picked up on this phrase, in Leviticus 19.18, and saw the importance of it to the law of God. And so since it's in the book of Leviticus, of course, that means it shows up in the Mosaic law, in the law of God, in Old Testament Israel's law. But this verse, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, is quoted again and again by Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament. Let me just list for you the passages of Scripture where it belongs, not so that you think about them or look them up, but just so you understand the frequency with which this command is repeated in the the New Testament. Leviticus 19.18 is quoted in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 19. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 39. In Mark chapter 12, verse 31, and Mark 12, verse 33, and Luke 10, verse 37, 27, and Romans chapter 13, verse 9, and Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, and here in James chapter 2, verse 8. For something that looked like it was just tacked on to a more specific command of God, it's quoted an awful lot. And that's because in that statement, love your neighbor as yourself, God's law, at least half of it, was encapsulated. Jesus told us that there were two centralized commands, two importance commands in the word of God that we need to understand. Jesus said that God's law can be summed up in two commands. One is love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the other is love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said at various times that the whole law hangs on these two commands, or he says that they can all be summed up in these two commands. Loving God with all your heart goes to the command about no other gods before me, no idols, and so on. It sums up the commands about how we worship and who we worship 
and the exclusivity of worshiping God and coming to God in the way that he prescribes. Someone who loves God will worship God the way that God wants. But this second command, love your neighbor as yourself, serves very much as a basket in which many of the other commands of God also can be included. Of course, if you love God, you're going to want to keep all of his commands. But love your neighbor as yourself helps us understand and apply the other commandments of God. And so that's why I say that love is the center of God's law. Because Jesus said it. He said, God's law hangs on the command to love God and love others. And so then, if people loved God and others properly, no one would ever steal. You don't love somebody by stealing from them. You, you wouldn't lie. You wouldn't kill, and so on. Love would prevent you from committing all these other sins that are specified in the commands of the law of God. And so when James repeats this command and says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's trying to help us see the principle that undergirds the law of God in many ways. Now, the word love, we need to understand, is an action word. We don't typically use it in common English usage that way. When we say, I love you, we think, we, I think we think, and the person hearing us thinks, I have many positive emotions towards you, which doesn't sound great, but I think that's what we mean. And I think that's what we interpret other people meaning when they say they love us. That's not really what love is about. Love carries a lot of positive emotions. So I'm not saying it's, I'm certainly not saying it's wrong to feel feelings of love. What I'm saying is that is a misunderstanding, a really serious misunderstanding of what love is. Love is an action word. And it's demonstrated not by words and not by feelings. It's demonstrated by how somebody acts. Show me how somebody acts toward another person, and I'll tell you if they love that person, hate that person, or are indifferent toward that person. Actions communicate so much more than words do. And notice in this passage that the command in the middle of the verse that we've been looking at sets forth the standard of what love is. We're talking here about love, and I said that it's an action word. But the standard is, love your neighbor. This is anyone who's nearby, anybody that's, that you know that's within your reach. It's the most generalized word for someone that you've had an acquaintance with of any kind. But James says the standard is, as yourself, as yourself is the standard by which God measures from his law whether or not we actually have loved other people or not. You, we, we all want to think that we're loving people. I can't imagine too many people on earth who, if you ask them, would you consider yourself a loving person, would say, no, no, I sure don't. We all consider ourselves loving people. We all want to think that we're loving people. Not one of us, I'm sure, would say I'm perfect, but most of us would say, generally speaking, we are loving toward other people. But do you do for other people what you do for yourself, what you would do for yourself? That's a whole different standard, isn't it? It's a lot harder to do for others what you do do for yourself than it is just to be kind to other people, than it is just to smile at other people. 
than it is not to get annoyed at the annoying things that other people can do. Those are loving behaviors, but that's not the same as loving them as you love yourself. And so that's the standard by which love is measured. It's not, are you nice to everybody or anybody? It's, do you treat them the same way you treat yourself? And notice how James describes this as we look at the first part of the verse now. James says, if you really keep the royal law, the royal law, and there's much discussion among New Testament commentators on James about what this means. What is the royal law and why is James calling it the royal law? And I think most of what they have, the commentators I read said about it is way off track. Not that it's wrong necessarily. I just think it misses the point. When James calls it the royal law, I think he's emphasizing to us again that this is a supreme law. That this is an elevated principle. Because as I already said, it's like a basket in which so many other of God's laws can be gathered. If you love somebody else, again, you're not going to steal their ox. But you also will do good things like the law commands us to, if we see our neighbor's ox in the ditch, we don't just go on by, we stop and help. Why? Because that's what you would do if your ox was in the ditch. And so by calling it the royal law, James is saying, this is an elevated principle. This is the one of the two most important laws. I think that's all he's saying. He's saying it's this reigns supreme over the other laws of God because it gathers them all up. And notice again that James says this royal law is found in Scripture. Again, that means God wrote it down. So it has authority over us. It's the standard by which God will judge us because he included it in his word for us. Now, James begins this verse by saying, if you really keep the royal law. This word keep is the word fulfill. And that's not normally what we think of when we think about keeping a law. Normally, when we think about keeping the law, we think about obeying it, right? It's either laws are either obeyed or disobeyed. They're not necessarily fulfilled. Fulfills is things like prophecy or contracts. A contract has terms in it. And if you do everything that's spelled out in the contract, you fulfilled your part of the contract. I think James uses this word fulfilled instead of obey. Because he wants us to understand that there is a deep principle involved here in loving your neighbor as yourself. That to fulfill the law means keeping the spirit of it, not just the letters, not just the the things that are specifically spelled out, but in all the various ways in which we would say this is a gray area. Love would compel us to do something we might not ordinarily do for somebody else, but we would do for ourselves. I think that's why he says we fulfilled it, because if we really internalize what it means to love other people, to do acts of love consistent with what we would do for ourselves, we would do a lot more for other people than we tend to do for them. So he says fulfilled in order to get us to think about the depth and the importance of this command. And notice also the word really in that verse. If you really keep the royal law. What does that indicate? It indicates calling a claim into question, right? If I go to my insurance company and I sit down with my auto insurance agent and I say, I always, always, I'm shaking my head no, it's like that's a nonverbal cue that I don't really believe what I'm saying. But if I say I always 
obey the speed limit. And my insurance agent says, really? If you really always obey the speed limit, then you are entitled to a discount on your auto insurance. But the word really interjects the idea of doubt. It shows that my insurance agent doesn't actually really believe me when I say I always obey the speed limit. And that's what James is doing here. He's saying, okay, everybody believes that they're a loving person. Many people would say, yeah, generally speaking, in most instances, I do love my neighbor as myself. And James is there saying, really? Now, after saying that, after saying, if you really do this, if you really obey this law, he closes it out by saying something else at the end of the verse. He makes a statement about our behavior and says, if we really do this, you are doing right. You are doing right. When he says that we are doing right, this phrase, doing right, sets up the contrast. It not only affirms the behavior, yes, of course. It's the right thing to do, to be loving toward others, to do acts of love, to treat others the way you treat yourself. Of course, that's the standard. James didn't have to tell us we're doing right. So why did he say that? The answer is to set up the contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. In verse 9, he is going to concede for the sake of argument that maybe you and I are loving people. But now in verse 9, he's going to introduce the possibility that we aren't as loving as we think we are. Notice what verse 9 says. It says, but, there's the word of contrast, right? But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Here's the contrast between the claim to be loving toward others and the conduct that comes so very easily to us. If you've been here for previous messages in this paragraph, you know that I tried to make a big point about saying that favoritism comes naturally to us. That favoritism is instinctive in human beings. Well, now James is going to say, because it's instinctive in human beings, maybe you haven't realized how often the way you show favoritism toward other people actually violates the law of God's love. Maybe you haven't realized how showing favoritism in the church calls into question your claim and mine to be loving people who love God and others the way that we should. That's what's going on here as we enter verse 9. He says, but if you uh, show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. This word favoritism is related to the word favoritism that introduced this paragraph in verse 1. Remember verse 1, James said, brothers, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. And I told you that favorite, that word favoritism is a word that the New Testament writers seem to have invented following the Hebrew concept. And it means to receive the face, which means to look at the appearance of somebody else and judge them. And then treat them differently based on how we judge them. People who appear good to us in some ways, we treat well. People who don't appear good to us in whatever way, we treat poorly. That's what favoritism is. Now James uses the same kind of word here and says, if we show favoritism to other people, if we show favoritism to other people, and the word show reminds us that we're talking about actions here, not feelings, not thinking, but actions, which reveal thinking and thinking. Well, what happens when we show favoritism to others? James says two things happen in the rest of the verse. One is you sin, 
And two is you're convicted by the law. When you and I show favoritism to others, two things happen. One, we sin, and two, we are convicted by the law. Let's break this down and talk about sin. The word sin here, there are many words for sin in the Bible. One of them, and this is the one that's used here, is to miss the mark. And when I think of missing the mark, I think of a guy with a bow and arrow shooting at a target off in the distance. And an archer in that situation who shoots his arrows and doesn't hit the bullseye or even the target, has missed. He's missed the mark. He failed to do what he was attempting to do. And any person watching this would say objectively, you failed, you missed, you missed the mark. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. When James says you and I sin by showing favoritism, what sin does he have in mind? He has in mind that we miss the mark of verse 8, love your neighbor as yourself. He, what he's saying is every act of favoritism shows that we don't really love other people the way that we think that we love them, the way that we claim to love them. We don't love them as ourselves. Instead, we make unrighteous and sinful choices based on our own biases, not based on love. And when he says here, you sin, we could actually translate it, you commit sin. And that, that describes a willful a choice, a decision that is made by us. And so the messages of verses 8 and 9, the message of verse 8 and 9 is to us that it is right to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God wants. But favoritism isn't loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the opposite. It's anti-love. It's against everything God has told us about how we should care about him and care about others in this world, care for others in this world. And so when we as a church favor someone in our church who looks good in whatever way you want to define it, someone who looks affluent by the way that they dress or the car that they drive, someone who looks good in the sense that they are young, and healthy, someone who looks good in the sense that they are stylish, someone who looks good in the sense that they have a resume of impressive um, professional accomplishments. When we favor a person like that and we treat them well, not because we love them, but because we want some of that shine to reflect on us, because we want to be associated with somebody like that because we hope that they'll choose to be friends with us and maybe there'll be other benefits behind it. Yes, we should love that person too. But if our love for them is selfish, that's favoritism. And if we as a church shun those who come into our church who don't look good, we're choosing to intentionally break God's command to love our neighbor as ourselves. If in the church we refuse to serve someone based on that person's looks, we've missed the mark of God's love that he commands us to have toward others. If we mistreat someone who comes into our church because of their appearance, we've sinned against our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, as verse 1 describes him. And so this is all very serious stuff. 
favoritism is something that is that matters to God and that God notices and that God keeps track of because it violates the very core of his word, the very core of his law, the very thing he wants us to embody and reflect in this world, which is love toward other people. And so that's the first thing that happens when you show favoritism, you sin. And the second one is in this next phrase, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. We are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The word convicted means to be reproved by, okay? It's not talking about an internal conviction of sin. Sometimes we, probably most of the time, if we say we're convicted, what we mean is I heard a sermon or I read a verse and I became aware of my own sin and I felt bad about it, okay? That's a perfectly legitimate way to use the word, but that's not what James is saying. James is saying the law stands up and accuses us. The law stands up and reproves us. It rebukes us the same way that someone who is calling in our bad behavior into question and telling us we did wrong. That's what the law does to us. When we show favoritism, it stands there to accuse us of doing wrong in the sight of God. And notice how, what it convicts us of. It says that we are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. That word lawbreakers could be translated as transgressors. This is describing someone who deliberately does what is wrong. You know, like if you ch- tell your child to, to sit in the chair and not, you know, don't cross this line for some reason. Let's say you're at a basketball game, all right? And they're not supposed to cross the line to go into the court. And you start to see that foot stick out a little bit, okay? That's an intentional transgression, right? It's somebody who's trying to push the boundaries. The Bible says when we show favoritism, that's what we're doing. We're trying to push the boundaries of love. We're trying to create a more unloving environment that benefits ourselves. And the law stands there and says, you are doing wrong in the sight of God. And so when we talk about the issue of favoritism, we've said already that favoritism is not usually a violation of human law, but favoritism breaks the law of God. And that's because love is at the center of God's law. But now going forward then, as we come to verses 10 and 11, The scripture tells us that breaking one of God's laws shatters all of God's law. Breaking one of God's law shatters all of God's law. Look with me at verse 10. James says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, You have become a lawbreaker. In these two verses, verses uh, 10 and 11, James begins to tell us why it's important for us not to show favoritism. Because favoritism breaks the law, and breaking one law breaks all of God's laws. That's the argument that he's making. That's what he's teaching. The principle here is that one violation of God's law shatters all of God's law. And I think this is um, important for us to understand. And, and I'll, James will explain, and I'll show you why, why this is true in a moment. But we need to sit with this for a moment, because I, I don't think that we, this seems obvious to us just on the looks of it. And that's because we are used to components breaking and being replaced, Right? Let's say that you are pulling into your garage and you get too close to the side and you knock off or do some kind of damage to the mirror on the driver's side of the car. 
well, that's annoying. It's inconvenient, but that's a part that can come off and be replaced. It's amazing how much they'll charge you to replace that mirror. Not that I have any experience with this, mind you. But the truth is, you haven't destroyed the car, okay? You could break a piece, a part of it. You can do damage to it, but the car still functions. And I think we would tend to say, well, the law is sort of like that too. Yeah, I might be breaking some things out here on the periphery. Maybe my obedience to it isn't perfect. I haven't perfectly fulfilled the law. But for the most part, I've been a good citizen. I've been obedient to God's word. I'm free of being accused of being a lawbreaker. James is telling us that God's law is not a series of components that have been compiled together. Instead, it's like the windshield of your car. One crack on that thing means the whole thing has to come off and be replaced. Why? Because you can't just cut out the part where the crack is and replace it with glass. Glass doesn't work like that. Windshields aren't set up for that. If you crack the windshield, you've broken the whole thing, and the whole thing has to be replaced. That's how God views his law. God views his law in its totality. He views it as a whole. And you and I, if we're going to understand God's word, God's law, and be obedient to it, we need to understand that this is true. We need to understand the totality of what God has communicated in his word. Now, what this doesn't mean is that every command of God's law is, has equal weight in its importance. It's not saying that if you covet your neighbor's house, the 10th commandment, you break that law, that you might as well just go ahead and kill him, breaking the 6th commandment too, because if you break one law, you've broken them all. That's not the point. Okay, It's not the point at all. It's not a license to say, well, I'll never be perfect, so I might as well be as lawless as possible. No, the point isn't that every law has the same weight or the same effect or the same consequence. The point is that one law, every infraction is the same as the others in the sense that it makes you guilty before a holy God. That's the point. Every one of God's laws, even the ones that seem small and minor to us, are still enough to condemn you to an eternity in hell for eternity. Because God's law is of a piece. It's one component. It's one thing. There's a unity to God's law. And so this is how James describes the law for us. Now, why is this the case? Why is it that breaking one of God's laws shatters the entirety? That answer is given to us in the next verse, verse 11. Look with me at it. Verse 11 tells us why, and it starts with the word for. That explains why breaking one law shatters the whole thing. And so James says, For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. The most important piece of this verse is probably the easiest piece to miss. Let me say that again because I think it's really important. The most important piece of this verse to understanding what it's saying is probably the easiest piece to miss. And that's the word he. James is saying It's the same God who said, don't commit adultery and do not murder. The reason that God's law has this unity to it, the reason why favoritism breaks the law of God just as much as first-degree murder does, is because it all came from the same person. It all came from the same lawgiver. It all expresses the righteousness and holiness 
that is at the center and core of God's very being, and the love that is also at the core of God's very being. And so the he in this verse is God, not Moses. He is the lawgiver. And James's point is that the rest of the verse is to say that though every violation of God's law is a violation of God himself personally. That's the problem with breaking the law of God. Every one of them is an infraction against God himself personally. And so if you, pardon this example, all right, but if you go up and smack your mother in the face, let's smack your father in the face, let's do it that way, all right? If you smack your father in the face, that's, that's bad, that's evil, that's wrong, right? But if you curse him, that's also bad and evil is wrong. There are different kinds of evil. If you steal five bucks out of his wallet, you've also offended him, right? But they're different things. But they're all attacks against the person who is your father, the person who deserves your love. It's the same with the law of God. They don't all have equal weight and equal importance, but they all, every violation attacks the person of God himself. And who are we? James says we are people who have been called by God's, God's name in a, in a previous verse. We belong to God. We, we, we have God's nature. We, we should want to reflect the glory of God in our lives. And so every time we sin, we're not mirroring the greatness of God. We're not showing the greatness of God. We're not desiring the greatness of God. We're attacking the greatness of God in every sin that we commit. And so this is why breaking one law shatters the whole thing, because there's one lawgiver, and he's the one who matters. Now, again, in our system of laws, we have different lawgivers, right? We have the federal government of the United States. They have their own laws. And we have the state of Michigan where we live, and they have their own laws. There are many correspondences between these laws. But there are some differences. Some things are legal in the state of Michigan that are illegal in the federal government. I can think of a good example here, but I won't say what it is. Just look at a few billboards around, and you may know what I'm talking about. Some things are legal in Michigan that are actually illegal in the United States. And that means if we did one of those things that's legal in Michigan, but not legal in the United States, the state of Michigan would say, I've got no case here. I have no problem with what you did. You haven't broken the law. But the federal government has a different opinion. Why? Because we have two different lawgivers. In God's law, there is one lawgiver. And that's why we need to take all of his commandments seriously. And so since God is the giver of all his laws, violating one command breaks, makes you a lawbreaker. That's what he says at the end of the verse. He who said, don't do these things, also don't, don't commit adultery, also said, don't commit murder. If you do one but not the other, you've broken the whole thing. That's the point. It's not that you've committed an equal sin. It's that you've broken the law. That's the thing. It makes you equally a lawbreaker. And so when we bring this back to the context of our favoritism in the church, we see that since God wants us to love one another, and God commands us to not feel lovingly toward one another, but he commands us to do acts of love, to show acts of love toward others. When we commit favoritism, we're failing to love our neighbor as ourselves. When we see a need in our church and we say, uh, I never. I don't really know that person, or that person 
looked at me funny on Sunday. I don't really want to help them. That's committing an act of favoritism. It's, it's anti, it's against the law of God. That's everything that James has been trying to communicate to us in this passage of Scripture that we've been looking at for this morning. Favoritism is not usually a violation of human laws, but favoritism breaks the law of God's love. And so what should we do about this? How should we respond? The answer is very simple. We should show love, not favoritism, as an intentional act of faith. God wants us to understand that his law, though we're not under it in the same sense that Israel was, it still communicates his heart. It still communicates his holiness. It still communicates his greatness. And for those who aren't in Christ, it is the standard by which they will be judged for eternity. And for those of us who are in Christ, it shows us what God wants us to look like in this world, to live like in this world. So the penalties of the law are gone for us if we're in Christ. That doesn't mean we disregard what God's law says. It means we understand that it reflects his greatness in his heart. And so that means because love is at the center of God's law, because it's the thing that really will compel us to complete the whole law of God, then we need to learn to show love in our church, to show love and not favoritism. And this is an intentional act of faith in the sense that it flows out of our faith in Christ. Remember, favoritism, as I've said over and over again, is instinctual. It comes easy to us. That means if we're going to be anti-favoritistic, we're going to have to make some intentional decisions against favoritism. We're going to have to think about people that we may have ignored or spurned in the church and think about what it would mean to show love toward those people. God created Israel, the original recipients of his law, to be a community of love, a place of love. That's why he gave his commands the way he did. And the standard of that love is to do for someone else what you would do for yourself in the same situation. God created the church to be a place of love, a place where love is shown and displayed. And unlike Israel, where most of the people in Israel throughout history did not have the spirit of God, They did not have the new nature. We do. That's what makes us the church. We have God's nature in us. We have God's word. We love God. God created this church. He created every church to be a place where love is shown, where it's displayed. And so if we look at other people and we serve them because they like us or because we like them or because they look good or because they can help us in some way, We may be doing loving acts, but it's rising from a heart of favoritism. And if we look at other people around us and try to come up with excuses and reasons why we shouldn't serve them, why we can't help them, why we won't do for them what we would do for ourselves, we're showing favoritism. Remember way back at the beginning of this message, I said, That human laws can't see what's in the heart, and that's why it makes discrimination and favoritism hard to prove. But God does see what's in the heart. He sees whether we are truly motivated by a desire to love him and love others in the way that we treat other people. We're going to come back to this and close out this message, this passage next Sunday, where we see that God is going to hold us accountable. He's going to judge us based on how we discriminate or not in the church. 
But as we think about this passage of Scripture and we think about love being the center of God's law, we need to think about how to put that into practice as an intentional act of faith in our lives. What does it mean to love one another in terms of doing actionable things that we would do for ourselves? That's the test of love, whether you're good to someone who can't be good back to you. And this is an intentional act of faith.